Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. Bone Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. Originally published in 1961, Houdini's Fabulous Magic was written by Walter Gibson and Morris Young, both of which knew and worked with the said most famous magician of all time. The two authors were able to write the revolutionary book because they not only had had access to Houdini himself, but his personal notes and the assistance of friends and family of the performer. The book fell out of print for many years, but is finally been reprinted by Vine Leaves Press. Morris Young's son, Charlie Young, comes back by the woodpile to talk about the contents and history of the book and his own personal memories of growing up in a setting where magic and wonder was appreciated and embraced. How did... You first become aware that your dad had helped write a book on Harry Houdini. Perhaps the best way to answer that is to give you a a little bit of history or tell you a bit of a story about growing up. Because when this book came out, when when it actually was published in 1961 for the first publication, I was only like 10 years old. And the formulation, of course, began several years before that when I was, you know, maybe seven or something like that. So let me tell you just a bit about growing up and how I became aware of my dad being involved in all this stuff. I grew up in a relatively large apartment building on Riverside Drive in Manhattan. A lot of those buildings along there uh, were built in the turn of the century, 1900. In particular, our building was built in 1910. Uh, it had, to me, an eerie-sounding name. A lot of these buildings were named like the Dakota is a building people would have heard of on, on Central Park West uh, because of John Lennon. But uh, uh, a lot of the other buildings had names. Ours was named Glen Karen, and that was inscribed in gold letters outlined in black on they were placed on the gray sandstone facade of the building uh, right near the entryway. There were three kind of granite steps that led up to this entryway that had carriage lights flanking these large black iron doors. And it seemed like a castle to me. It was 12 stories tall. Riverside Drive faces the park, which is on the Hudson River. And it fell in line with, you know, dozens of the other apartment buildings that were similarly tall. Together they formed like a line of castles that I looked at as a, a palisade that mirrored the palisades that were across the river on the Jersey Shore. When you entered Glencairn, its lobby was two stories tall. It was very cavernous. Wind would come off the river, particularly in the wintertime, would whistle through these doors and into this tall marble lobby that just echoed with it. So that in itself was a kind of haunting thing that inspired great people inspiration, I think, if they were in in the arts. My family's apartment was on the eighth floor. 
And um, although none of us were singers or stage performers, the Upper West Side is known for performers. And my father seemed to attract a steady stream of entertainers um, as guests to, to the family home. He was just an, an ophthalmologist, and he, you know, basically he had a very calm, exterior, erudite personality, but he had an, a maverick side, uh, which, which included this interest in magic and magician's artifacts. Um, the reason for that really was that early on, he had developed an interest in what things he had always called things magical, and everything that came along with that. He grew up in Lawrence, Massachusetts, where magic was his passion, and then he would perform little magic shows that he told me about um, as he was a kid and then also as a teenager. And as a teenager, he had a, a magic act where he performed uh, as a cataleptic act where his associate would put him in a trance and he would hold his body between two chairs where he was balanced and looked like he was just sort of floating there. And one day, you know, Houdini used to uh, travel about doing his uh, escapes and magic shows. And he came to that town and um, my dad somehow met him and asked him to look at his act. And Houdini, uh, I guess impressed that a youngster uh, was so interested in magic, watched him do this act. And, and he said, let me sponsor you into the Society of American Magicians. Now, Houdini had formed that society. He had felt like uh, there needed to be some organization bringing magicians together. So he sponsored my dad at an early age to become a, a member of SAM, or the Society of American Magicians, that formed a uh, bond between the two of them that uh, they did continue to be friends or, uh, or and maybe correspond even. But Dad collected a lot of stuff just like Houdini did. Houdini ultimately had donated his library to the Library of Congress, and my dad did similarly with his things uh, when it came time for him to dispose of that collection. So their, their friendship went on for years, and my father patterned himself in some ways after this great magician. And because of that magical interest, magicians and authors of magic were frequently at our home, magicians like Blackstone or Cardini or Christopher, and also writers like Walter Gibson, who was the author of the Shadow Novels and the Who Knows What Evil Lurks in the Minds of Men, uh, which was, were books and, and there was a radio broadcast at the time. Um, so uh, the uh, uh, at night when I would be going to bed um, in our apartment, um, my bedroom faced on a... Uh, or the window was on a courtyard and my dad's studies window was also in the courtyard and he would be either writing correspondence or perhaps writing beginning to write his books and i'd hear these keys of the royal typewriter echoing in the courtyard it's like a little dance as i went to bed um so uh, th this is i think how i um early on became aware that my dad, you know, what are you doing, dad, up late at night in there? And he would say, well, I'm writing, you know, I'm writing a book, I'm writing a book with Walter, I'm writing a book with this. Um, and 
it, it takes time to to write these things. It would go on for months and years, um, and uh, that's how I became, I guess, aware that he was a writer in addition to being a, an ophthalmologist. Did your dad keep up a correspondence with Houdini while he was alive? I didn't find any letters uh, in there. Um, you know, there were a few books that were, you know, autographed that uh, my dad had had that I don't know, you know, whether Houdini had just given it to him. Uh, you know, I know Walter Ghost wrote some of Houdini's books. So there was a threesome there where the three of them uh, knew Houdini and, and how exactly they came into his possession. You know, I don't know for all of them. Uh, some of them are autographed to other people, but some are just autographed. So I know there was some ongoing connection, uh, particularly because of the sponsorship to Sam. His correspondence files did not have any directly with Houdini. How did your dad and Walter Gibson, how did they end up knowing these secrets about how Houdini did his tricks, which is largely what the book is about? Like, it tells you everything, which is fascinating, because at least to me, like, now I don't look at a prison the same way, or I don't look at a, a box that's locked the same way, because I think, uh, how would Houdini reverse engineer this thing to get out? Well... You know, there is uh, certainly mainly through Walter's connection. Walter was, uh, you know, a well-known writer in the magic field. In addition to his, you know, writing things for writing all those, there was there were almost three hundred shadow novels. So, so he's a very prolific writer, and he later on wrote uh, some of the the uh, Twilight Zone uh, shows and One Step Beyond. He wrote some of those scripts for uh, uh, television and uh, also wrote the scripts for a radio show called Strange. I think Walter's ghostwriting Houdini's text was part of this intimate knowledge that he could bring to the book. But in addition, uh, Houdini actually, for a period of time, hired Walter as his personal secretary. Not all secretaries were female. Um, the, and Walter would be in the home and, and also travel with Houdini, keeping notes and uh, keeping uh, organizing his library and his, and his books. And uh, when Houdini died, the estate uh, allowed Walter to have access to all the notebooks that many of which Walter himself had produced or had organized for Houdini. So he had this to refer to, to create um, this book and actually a couple others about Houdini's magic. Uh, prior to this one, I think my dad and Walter did one called Houdini on Magic, which was taken specifically almost as printings the material from the notebooks. But in this particular book, uh, Houdini's Fabulous Magic, uh, is more telling about in addition to telling his most famous tricks and how they were done, what it was like traveling with this magician, how he, he, what kind of a showman he was. His connection with the family was such that it wasn't just with uh, uh, Houdini himself, but Houdini's wife, Beth, um, after Houdini's death had carried 
on a tradition of having a yearly seance on the date of his death, which oddly enough was on Halloween, mm-hmm. uh, October 31st. And she and Houdini had agreed that uh, after his death, he would always try to contact her. Um, and they held a seance yearly where she would hire a someone to lead the seance and try to contact a medium, yeah, to contact the magician. Uh, after 10 years of holding this vigil and not being successful, she decided to not do it again herself, but turned it over to Walter to continue them. So Walter then became the master of ceremonies, also often bringing in a medium to uh, reenact this spiritualism event where they would try to bring Houdini back, or at least, you know, have some kind of a contact with him. But what I remember, um, like, didn't Houdini and his wife agree to have a certain word or a phrase that only they would know? Yes, they did. No one ever really fully uh, came back with that. She did, unfortunately, discuss or divulge part of that to somebody at one point, which leaked out to somebody, and then supposedly somebody came back with the right message. But it wasn't a complete right message. So there was never any legitimate... Uh, recontacting with the correct secret message. Although he wanted to believe that such could be possible, he didn't believe that anybody was able to do it. And he spent much of his latter part of his life showing that uh, spiritualism was bunk and that uh, it was all um, fake. Um, One of the... uh, things that developed to try to get to the bottom of it because it became very popular during that period of time. The the organization that does Scientific American put together a panel of uh, scientists and physicians said that, you know, if anybody can, if we can't figure out that what you're doing is false, you know, we'll attest to the fact that maybe people can talk, that there is life after death. They actually made Houdini one of the people on the committee. Houdini always said, I'm really the only one in Houdini who knows how to unmask these these frauds. Frequently, the physicians and the scientists would be uh, totally aghast and, you know, this, the wool pulled over their eyes as to how could this possibly be? Maybe it is real. Uh-huh. And then Houdini would show, no, here, this is how they did it. And he would duplicate the same phenomenon, the tables rising, the, the, the whisper, the ghosts appearing, all the different things that occurred in, in the seances. So are you aware if Bess Houdini gave Walter Gibson the phrase, since he was the one who's going to continue the seance stuff? I don't think she divulged that to him initially, but I, I believe later on there was the discussion between Walter and Bess as to what the actual phrase was. It, it is, I don't recall it today, but it is, you can look up the reference as to what the phrase was. It is widely known now. <laughs> Can you give uh, an example from the book about how Houdini pulled off some of these tricks? Like, pick out your favorite one. Let me read you something from 
the book, Houdini's Fabulous Magic, uh, where Houdini himself sort of answers that. Some people, even Arthur Conan Doyle, thought that Houdini had special powers uh, and that, you know, maybe he had developed an ability to, to uh, contact the dead and do all these other things and had formulas to, to do these tricks so that they weren't just tricks, but but were, were special powers, superpowers, let's say. But Houdini himself says on one trick, this is where he's put into, I think, a coffin and either buried or dumped into the ocean. He said, when I am nailed securely within a weighted packing case and thrown into the sea, or when I'm buried alive under six feet of earth, it is necessary to preserve absolute serenity of spirit. I have to work with great delicacy and lightning speed if I grow panicky, I'm lost. If something goes wrong, if there is some little accident or mishap, some slight miscalculation, I'm lost unless all my faculties are working on high and free from mental strain or tension. The public sees only the thrill of the accomplished trick. They have no conception of the tortuous preliminary self-training that was necessary to conquer fear. And this is it, and, and the book, describes a lot of things like this and goes into it in much more detail where uh, Harry will explain uh, the types of almost exercise that he did, the, the pre-training uh, and mental concentration and practice, you know, learning how to hold your breath for several minutes, learning how, you know, even up to you know 15 or 20 minutes, um, how to slow your heart. All, all of this is mental concentration and uh, daily training with weights and uh, keeping your joints um, very mobile, learning how to use your toes, your tongue, you know, almost every part of your body to facilitate an escape and to make it possible. So it's not just a trick and it's not something that every person can just learn, you know, because if you read how it was done, don't try it. It's something you need to practice for years. Uh, to become safe at doing many of these things. They were not safe tricks. These things could go wrong. You could risk your life. People risk their lives today. And magicians at that time, some of them did die doing these you know, marvelous tricks, as they called them. But they took tremendous skill and practice and organization um, oftentimes involving, you know, not just the magician himself, but a backup staff that knew exactly what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and were just as practiced and skilled to make sure these things went right and that the magician did not die. So there was a huge safety factor in these things. I heard it's a rule in the magic industry that you're not supposed to give away your secrets. And so you've got this book where the secrets are being given away, at least Houdini's version of it. Uh, was there any controversy when the book came out? Uh, was there any hate mail or by other magicians or you know someone else in the brotherhood? Uh, well, that's a, that's a fairly easy one to answer in that um, you know, a magician is not supposed to just you know do the trick and show people how the trick is done. Um, it was accepted very early on that if you paid for the information, then it was allowed. And early on, of course, I mean, the value of money's changed a lot today, but even at the shows, they would sell 
you know, a little packet with how to do different tricks, maybe for 50 cents or a dollar. That was perfectly legitimate. So if you come out with a book that describes how to do these different things and you charge what well, it would be an acceptable amount of money for it, the at least the society, uh, the different magical societies would not be angry about it. Okay, so what I understand, because I have a friend who's a magician, and, and I would every once in a while help him move things, his items, and on occasion I would you know look at something and figure out, oh, that's how they do it. And then once you figure like one thing out, it, you realize that a lot of tricks are on a certain template. Like one template can be several tricks in different ways. So when a book like this comes out, do you think magicians have to like rethink their templates or do you have any insight into that? I think a lot of, a lot of magic is the same trick being redone in different ways. Just like, I guess, Westerns are the same tale again and again, or Shakespeare is telling the same thing that people have told for hundreds or thousands of years. There are only so many tales. There's so many tricks or way or different types of illusions, but the way you produce it makes it different. And this is why some magicians become, I think, very famous that they are showmen and their ability to, uh, their pattern of, of what they say and how they present the particular illusion or escape suspends one's reality. And even though they may have seen it before or the audience has seen it before, it still is astounding to them because of the presentation. I know now that after helping my friend and learning how one trick was done, I didn't want to know anymore because it kind of ruined it. I love the wonder or love trying to maybe decipher it out in my head at a show rather than having someone tell me how. Magic crayons make magic pictures on a magic window. When you shout this magic word, Winko, Winko, Winko. What was the public reaction to the book's initial publication? And, I mean, are you aware of any people that would go on to be big-time magicians, like getting a hold of this book when they were younger and having it change their life or you know put their life on a certain path or something? This particular book was a hit. You know, it was a, a bestseller uh, in these terms. It, it was uh, 1961, but the first edition of it uh, went through, I think, nine or ten printings. Then went on and had a, a, a Canadian edition. Um, it was so popular that uh, and was, had so many different covers that at one point even Barnes and Noble wanted to do their own edition of it, which they did. So there was a Barnes and Noble production of the book. It did ha- have wide reception uh, and and uh, sales. It did influence a lot of people. Uh, you know, I've, I've certainly over the years had when I've talk to magicians that say, oh, your dad, you know, and Walter wrote that it influenced me so much when I was a kid. Um, one of the, uh, you know, more famous magicians who it influenced was uh, Teller, uh, Penn and Teller. Um, he's been kind enough to let us, you know, to give us a quote for the book, but basically he said, I've loved this book for 60 years. He said, my first copy was borrowed from the Philadelphia Public Library when I was 14. 
And I kept renewing that loan on the book till I could afford to buy my own copy. Oh. Said Houdini's magic was just the right blend for me of history, the technical secrets, the romance to fire the passion of a young magician. He said four pieces of the Penn and Teller repertoire were directly inspired by Houdini's fabulous magic. And that's four times more than any other book in its own personal library, he said. So, yeah, there's been a tremendous response, um, I think, over the years to the book and what it how it influenced young magicians to go on and actually become magicians. You know, the reissue of the book, I'll say I was in my own mind trying to decide should it be reissued or not. It's been out of print for almost, uh, I guess, about 60 years. And you can't go to a bookstore and buy it. And you couldn't, you, you, most libraries have already deaccessioned the book. So I felt it was, you know, probably time to bring it back. I found on the uh, internet, there's a, there's a column or, or a, a website called Wild About Harry. It's very popular that John Cox writes and uh, a lot of people subscribe to uh, kind of a blog about magic, but he also has sections about magic books. And, and on this particular one, on Houdini's Fabulous Magic, he said Walter and, and Morris are probably the it wrote the best forgotten Houdini book. And I said, yes, it's been forgotten. We need to bring it back. He uh, said that he thought it was actually one of the very best books on Houdini's major feats. And part of that you know, was because Walter uh, had this access to the magician's notebooks and Walter personally worked with him. And also my dad personally knew the man. There's nobody alive you know, today to write a book like that. Nobody alive today actually had that personal interaction with Houdini. So all they could do would be to quote things in this book about what Houdini would say mm-hmm. or how people actually saw Houdini, how they reacted to his different acts and his performances and what the man himself was like. These are firsthand impressions of the man. When I told like John Cox as well about Harry thing that we were bringing it out, he was excited. You know, and he put it on the website, it's coming out again. And when it came out, he was like, okay, it's now been released. You can get it. You can get a copy of it. It's now available. So there is a, in the magic world, uh, interest. I spoke with the editor of The Linking Ring, the, one of the major magic magazines, which is the International Brotherhood of Magicians. And they're going to put it in their book review section that the book has yet now been re-released and will be available. It does have a new foreword that gave Pajuri, who is uh, also a, a writer himself, but owns an auction house that is one of the major auction houses for magic and magic memorabilia and, and theater stuff uh, has written a great forward for the book. So there is something new in it as well. Uh, but it's worth, you know, definitely worthwhile just on all the things that are in it that you can't find in any other book that could be written today or they'd have to refer back to these. Now, you bring up the linking rings, and I think the editor you're talking about is Sammy Smith. Yeah. Yeah, I've been wanting to get him on the podcast for some time, but he's a busy fellow. But now, didn't your dad write an article many years ago for linking rings? Oh, he, he wrote several articles for the linking ring. 
and one about uh, discovering um, or coming to own what he called the last hand, the article is called The Last Handcuffs. He writes a story about when uh, Hardeen died, that was Houdini's brother, and Hardeen was a good magician himself, and also they, they worked in tandem that Houdini would come through town, do his act, and then Hardeen would follow after him, do many of the same tricks, because there was still enough interest, but not enough to fill as big a venue, let's say. So there's still money to be had, money not to be left on the table. And Hardeen would would uh, fill that role. Everything that Houdini had in his, his in his estate that was magic was willed to Hardeen upon his death. And then when Hardeen died, his wife sold a lot of it. Um, my dad had known them and uh, went over to the house to look to see what things might be left after she had sold off the main things because he wasn't collecting you know, large props and stuff at the time. He was interested in books, uh, basically, and memorabilia, uh, not apparatus. He was down in the basement looking at where the stuff was stored. And when he came up the stairs, he noticed just above the entryway to the stairway that a pair of handcuffs was nailed up there. But all other stuff like that, that there were actually, you know, apparatus or chains or uh, manacles had been sold. But he, he, when he got upstairs, he asked her, you know, is, is there any reason you're hanging on to that? Uh, has any, does it have some special significance or could he have them? And she said, oh, go ahead. He goes down. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, he took this last pair of handcuffs from the hard Houdini, and it was the Houdini Hardeen estate uh, because it was combined materials from the two acts. He wrote an article for the Linking Ring about those handcuffs, and it was so inspiring in terms of how he felt about having this last spore of uh, uh, the Houdini brothers um, that he owned that it inspired me to write a novel too that's a historical fiction that is called uh, Houdini's Last Handcuffs uh, which that'll come out by means press is, is going to release that in March of uh, 2024 and will include the story of those cuffs and not really giving anything too much away because it'll be on the book cover that the, uh, a lot of this tale in Houdini's Last Handcuffs is uh, it's historical fiction, but I have Houdini coming back to life uh, and coming back from Halloween. So um, it's a fun tale, but a tale of growing up in a family that's magical. But where we all, including Houdini himself, knew that true magic was science and math. He is a very intelligent fellow. Uh, and, you know, he didn't believe in the afterlife or, or in the spiritualism. He always tried to debunk it. But he, but the, to do these tricks required, in a sense, a scientific mind. And many of his friends and people who he developed relationships with over the years were just, uh, you know, were quite intellectual. It was 
was unusual. You know that that if you haven't been in in in, in a, an apartment in in the Dakota, and the Dakota was unreal. I was fortunate through friends to be able to see a few apartments or visit them for parties and, and events and things. But our own building also had some unusual details. Um, architects in that period just didn't have use for cookie cutter layouts the way they have today. Uh, and so the growing up in that atmosphere, I think helped very much in my uh, ultimately being able to write a book, write a book that's a fantasy, that's historical at the same time, but also a fantasy. Our apartment, I think architects hated square rooms. Um, our, I don't know that any room in the apartment was truly right angles. Uh, and they also loved the majesty of high ceilings. There were maybe 10 rooms to the apartment. It wrapped around a courtyard. The major rooms looked out over the drive and the river. But all these rooms were connected with long corridors. That, that was, They were so long, at least it seemed to me, that when I was young enough and had a tricycle, from my room at one end of the apartment, I would ride my tricycle all the way around the hallways through to the kitchen at the other side of the apartment. Yeah. The walls were thick. You couldn't you couldn't hear noises from other apartments. Um, you know, like I said, some rooms faced it would face west, others would face east. Some faced onto the onto the courtyard. All these halls also could be lined with bookshelves and doors that had been blocked off that had more than one entry door to some of the rooms. At one point, several years later, when I was an adult, Umberto Eco, um, who wrote, I think it was Remember the Rose or a book like that, um, had likened the apartment to George Borges's Library of Babel. He said the rooms, uh, there were rooms and rooms of books he, he had described in an article about, that he wrote, including our apartment. <laughs> Uh, that seemed almost like an infinite number of galleries, he said, or described it as circling a ventilation shaft, which I just called the courtyard. The implication uh, being, at least I think to, to Echo, was that uh, the apartment was a labyrinth that was a universe, a universe on its own, and in a sense a stepping off point to other worlds for learning and mystery. And that's what I used it for then. I, you know, I read that quote in, in the article that he wrote, and I, and I said, yeah, it is a stepping off point to, for a story that I'm going to call Houdini's Last Handcuffs. Now, with the handcuffs, I, I know with like certain collectible items, there's a process for having them authenticated. You know, like, uh, I don't know, um, like illustrations or signatures of people or you know, pieces of artwork. I mean, there's a whole documentary about some lady buying a, what she thought was a hilariously bad painting at a, you know, Salvation Army or a thrift shop and come to find out it was maybe Jackson Pollock's work. But there was a big argument for years over whether it was real or not. And, you know, you had all the experts coming in. So has there been any controversy or anybody saying like, ah, that's not Houdini's handcuffs or was that even a thing? Right. Well, I guess we're, the technical term for that is provenance. What's the provenance of the article? Yes. And, uh, it's basically the history of the article. Uh, how do you, can you document 
how you came into its possession. I'll say from my standpoint, I'll say fortunately, my dad was a very well-known collector. Um, he also never sold uh, anything uh, he may have traded, but his, his major collection he donated, gave to the Library of Congress and also to uh, the uh, University of Texas and then also to uh, Berkeley in California, University of California. So he gave things away. There was never a, an attempt to sell uh, any major items. In writing this article for the Linking Ring about these cuffs, uh, there's also a photograph of the cuffs and, and a description of his story and in the story saying that although many collectors tempted him with funds or different items to trade or just outright buy these from him uh, because of their significance, he states he was never, uh, never wanted to give them away. And so they were passed on to me. And he describes the cuffs fairly act, you know, with a lot of accuracy. And then in addition, there's a photograph of them in the article so that I feel, you know, what I have, it's easy to authenticate that these are truly the last handcuffs. Why do you think, okay, we all know that magic, magicians aren't really performing real magic. They, you know, it's not something supernatural. We all know it's an illusion or a trick, but why do you think, in spite of us knowing, bursting that bubble, why do we keep coming back to watch magicians do their thing? I, I think we all like to have our beliefs suspended, even though it may be just momentary, or our beliefs in reality or the laws of nature. And um, even though we may have seen a trick a hundred times, if it's performed well by the right person under the right circumstances, you suspend your belief and enjoy it for its showmanship and how masterfully it's been performed for you. I think it probably comes down to that because I know I know how to do a lot of these things, and yet when they're done again using the same principles, but on a grander scale, they can be marvelous. Okay, so how can folks get your book and or learn more? There is a, a website that they can go to if they put in Houdini's Fabulous Magic, um, without an apostrophe on the Houdini's, but HoudinisFabulousMagic.com. It'll take them to kind of a family website that they'll see several playing cards, like a deck of cards, of which uh, one or two of them will deal with Houdini's last handcuffs and magical things. And if they click on that card, that playing card, it'll take them to the website for the book and they can learn about the authors and the book itself and uh, some of the reviews and quotations about the book. Uh, but it also has a blog that I have been, uh, that I created for it, where I post different things about the family's magic dealings and collections. Uh, and including, there's some material about uh, another card that, that talks about the book that will be coming out of, that I've written along with my sister. On the blog, I have a, uh, uh, one of my entries uh, is uh, a very short video 
showing that how much this has influenced me that I've practiced a bit of leger de bain or sleight of hand and uh, do a vanishing card trick. So you can actually see a little magic show. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, com. still in a magical mood you might give in the corner back by the woodpile episode 282 a listen where charlie young made his first appearance on the podcast talking about the work of his uncle barney young who managed magician harry blackstone and a slew of musicians during the 1930s 40s and 50s and there's episode 31 where magician scott humston shares some of his great hilarious and heartwarming stories of his quest to make a career out of the mastery of illusion in the corner back by the woodpile is produced by a closet a pocket and a suitcase you can listen to this podcast on itunes stitcher or podbean.com if you'd like to send us some hate mail you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com see ya and i wouldn't want to be ya